Okay, and the story begins. We are on chapter 51, page 648. We're going to do the first half of the chapter tonight. We are again switching gears in the Tanya. We're only a couple of chapters away from the end of the book. And again, we've switched gears for a long time, pretty much from chapters 38 till about chapter 50, we've been discussing our emotions, our reverence for God, our love for God, the importance of kavana, of intention. Before that, we were talking about the importance of deed, how that's ultimately why God put us here, to do mitzvahs, which brings his wheel down here. And then we got into a long discussion, many chapters long, how that deed needs to be complemented with passion and with feelings, with feelings of reverence, feelings of love. Right, we gave the example of the bird. The main part of the bird is its body, but it needs wings to fly. So similarly, the main part of service to God is the deed. But if we want it to have flight, if we want it to be meaningful, if we want it to fully reveal its potential, there has to be the wings of love and reverence. And we spoke about various meditations on how to develop reverence for God which means how to really believe and feel that God is totally present with us, which means that's going to affect how we behave and how we're going to be passionate about this God who is present with us and care about him. And that's the love. And we gave numerous meditations to think about. And we concluded last week's chapter saying bottom line is the deed. Point of love is not the feeling of love itself, but what that love motivates us to do. The action. And when we do action, it brings God's divine presence down into this world. Now, that's what we're going to elaborate on in the next couple of chapters. What does it mean God's presence in this world? What does that mean that God's presence is resting? Um, what does that mean? Right? God is found over here. Well, isn't God everywhere? Like the children's song, Hashem is here, Hashem is there. God is everywhere. There is no place where he is not found. So what does that mean that when you go to the Beit HaMikdash, you go to the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and you experience God's presence is there. You go to the synagogue, God's presence is there. Well, why can't I pray at home? God, God is everywhere. And God is very good hearing, right? <laughs> Take a look, please, on page... 649, the first bold paragraph. Let's read this inside. We first need to have a bit of a more understanding about the idea of Shechina, of the Shechina resting. Shechina means God's divine presence. It's resting on an object in this world, right? When we do a mitzvah, we say God's presence is revealed there. We say that it rested in the chamber of the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so too, in other instances, the Shechina, the divine presence is resting. What does that mean? What does that mean God is resting? You do a mitzvah, God is more present. You go to the shul, God is more present. The miniature Beit HaMikdash. You go to the real Beit HaMikdash, God is more present. Next paragraph, how can we say that God's presence rests in a particular place, implying that it doesn't rest in another, when all the earth is filled with his glory 
and there's no place empty of him. So that's something we really need to understand because we're kind of looping back uh, from our discussion of love to our discussion of purpose, bringing God's presence down to this world. Isn't God already here? He's everywhere. I'll, I'll tell you why this is an important question. Because what does he need me for if he's totally present? We've asserted earlier that we are all needed. God created us to illuminate the world with his presence. If he's everywhere already, which he is, makes me feel kind of worthless. Well, then he doesn't really need me. It's just busy work. Right? And conversely, why do I need to make an effort to go to him, to go to shul? To go to, to do mitzvahs, to, to whatever, to, to create a safe space of divinity. He's everywhere. Okay. So we kind of need to take a step back and better understand how God operates, which is kind of a funny thing because we already know that God is not um, something our mind can really wrap you know, wrap itself around. We can, sorry, our mind cannot wrap itself around God and fully understand him. But if we want to understand on some limited level how God operates, we need to, under, we need to take a look in the mirror. We need to look within ourselves and understand how we operate. Let me put it differently. To understand God's relationship with the world and God being present in the world and what that means. Let's understand what it means that the soul is present with the body. Because God's relationship to the world is similar to the soul's relationship with the body. They parallel each other. This is why the Torah says that man was created in the image of God. Because the relationship God has to the world is a similar relationship that the soul has to the body. And by learning about the body-soul dynamic, we can appreciate God's relationship to the world and understand exactly what it means when we say his presence is resting here. Make sense? Take a look on... On page, where are we? Well, again, we're on 649 still. But let's go to the next paragraph. However, you see it? It's the third paragraph of the page. For, for, uh, third bold paragraph of the page, 649. However, the explanation is as follows. Based on the verse, it's a verse from Job. Where Job says, from my flesh, I perceive God. That spiritual phenomena can be discerned from the human body, which was created in the image of God. From my flesh, I perceive God. If I want to understand God, I have to look at my own self. Let me look at the body. Take a look at the next paragraph. It's similar to the notion that a person's soul fills all 248 parts of his body from head to toe. And nevertheless, while the soul is found throughout the body, the main location of resting of the soul is in the brain. Right? Look at, look at the person. The soul is everywhere. 
There's no place within your body that your soul is not, which is why every part of your body grows. As soon as a part of your body doesn't have life in it anymore, it has to be amputated. It can infect everything else. And because the soul is not as present there, the soul is no, no longer present. As long as we are alive, our soul is completely present everywhere. But where is the soul's main presence? The brain. Right? And the brain is kind of the, the vortex, if you will. I don't know if that's the right word or not. You'll correct me if I'm wrong. The brain is like the vortex of the soul. That's the pinnacle. That's where it starts. It extends to the rest of the body from the brain. And by the way, physiologically, this is quite evident because when you stub your toe and you feel the pain, Yes, your toe feels the pain, but, but who's aware of it? Your brain, right? Uh, I just want to say, I think you mean to say cortex. Cortex? Not 100% sure, but I think it's cortex. Not vortex? Vortex, no, that doesn't sound right. Like cerebral cortex? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Vortex would be a spinning. Like a tornado. Yeah. Okay, no, so you're right, cortex. Okay, you're right. Okay, thank you. Wait, right, when you stub your toe, who's aware of it? Your toe is aware of it, you feel it. Is your knee aware of it? Not really. Even your heart, your emotions, right? There's an emotional frustration. Why the heck did I just do that, right? But that's only because your brain was aware of it. Right, if your brain was not aware that you stubbed your toe, your emotions would not respond in the same way. Our emotions respond and everything responds because the brain is aware. And the reason is because the soul is primarily in the brain. That's the, that's where it starts, right? Again, we're using this as a parallel to understand our, uh, God's relationship with the world. Understanding our relationship with the soul, the body's relationship with the soul. The soul is everywhere, but it starts off in the brain. From the brain, it extends, by the way, to all the other uh, organs, all the other limbs. Um, on, God forbid, if somebody has inhibited sight, inhibited hearing, other inhibited abilities, uh, other inhibited functionalities, um, it, it often is going to have a lot to do with the brain, with brain health. And neuroscience is actually going to solve a lot of those problems. Unfortunately, right? God forbid somebody can't see. I, I mean, I don't, this is way beyond my scope of, of practice, but I, I imagine that they examine not just the eyes, but the, the neurology of the person himself also is gonna have a lot to, 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 to do with this. And, and, and the nerves in the brain are gonna have a lot to do with this as well. That's going to affect our hearing. It's going to affect our, our emotions, everything. And the reason is because it's starting the soul. There's a spiritual dynamic to everything. And the spiritual dynamic here is that the soul starts off in the brain. And that's where it extends to, to everywhere else. I like how they say that it flows equally to all parts of the body. It's not like something gets a preferential treatment. Um, where does it say equally? Oh, I see here. Yeah. 
Yeah. Although there is going to be some preferential uh, treatment, because, or I shouldn't say, can say you define equal here, because what the eye needs is different than what your ears need. And it's different than what your heart needs and what your hand needs. Or what your right. toenails need, right? <laughs> what? I guess that's the specialized energy that they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So it, it is going to be tailored, right? Um, put it this way. If you were to ask your eyes, interview them, what's it like being energized by the soul? This is very abstract, but just, just go with it. If you, were to, <laughs> if you were to interview your ears, if you were to interview your ability to smell, your, your, if you were to interview your hand or your toenail, you're going and, and ask them all, what's it like being energized by the soul? You're going to get very different answers from all of them. And the reason is because they all need very different energy. But it all comes from the same source, from the brain. But there is a tailored, um, the energy is tailored. The energy is, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. Okay. You'll just go with me on this one. Take a look, please, on page 650, the second paragraph. Despite the tailored energy, the soul is not actually changing. Um, and he asserts here that the soul, so there's like this dichotomy. On the one hand, each particular limb is receiving a, a specific type of energy, a different type of energy, one different than the other. The ears get something different than the eyes. The eyes get something different than the hand, different than your knee, whatever it is. On the other hand, the soul is not changing to cater to each particular limb. How does that work? So here's what he says. Uh, the second bold paragraph, page 650. Now the different powers and energies which the body's parts receive are not a direct product of the soul's core itself. In other words, it's not that the soul itself is divided in its core into 248 separate pieces which then enter 248 different locations, each power fitting into the precise form of the various parts of the body's autonomy. Anatomy, sorry, autonomy, anatomy. Because if this were true, it would mean that the soul's divine essence and core would cast in a physical form, shape and image, like the body's image. God forbid, we can't say that. We can't say that the soul itself conforms to the needs of your eyes, to your physiological needs, to your specific physiological needs. Because if that were the case, we're limiting the soul to a specific amount of time a uh, and to a specific space and to a specific form and shape. And we cannot do that because the soul is a piece of God. Right? And God is not limited to any time, space, or shape. God is imageless. If God is imageless, the soul, which is literally a piece of him, like we said in chapter two, it must be imageless as well. Right? 
And if that's the case, what's going to these limbs are not the soul itself, but the light of the soul. Which means, let me put it this way. When you ask your eyes, interview, go back to the interview that we have, right? This abstract interview. You ask your eyes, hey, how, uh, what's it like being energized by the soul? Your eyes might not even realize this. It's not really describing the soul. It's describing its experience of the soul. It's, it's describing the light of the soul, right? You have the sun, you have the light of the sun. We do that, by the way, with the sun all the time. How often do you say, I got a sunburn? You didn't get a sunburn. You were burnt by the rays of the sun. If you got burnt by the sun itself, you wouldn't be here to tell a story, right? But the rays come from the sun, so we associate it with the sun. So we say, I got a sunburn. It's the same thing with the soul, starting off in the brain, expanding to the rest of the body. We say the soul is energizing the body, but it's not really true. The soul, it, it, the, the light of the soul, we use light as an analogy. The soul somehow expands to the rest of the body, but its essence remains formless, shapeless. It, it has no spatial limitation or even time limitation. Make sense? We're with me? We're on the boat here. We're on the ark. Okay. Take a look at the next paragraph, the last paragraph of the page. Rather in truth, the soul is just one single non-composite spiritual essence, totally devoid of physical form. And it's devoid of any notion or semblance of physical space, dimension, or boundary in its essential core. So it makes no sense to say that the soul's essential soul, uh, core is found more in the brain of the head than the feet, since the essential, since the essential core of the soul doesn't process physical, spatial attributes or boundaries. Right. Again, we're we're just to so we don't totally, you know, just so we stay on track here. We're using this as a parallel to understand God. How could God be, how could we say God is more present in one place than another if he's everywhere? Okay, let's understand the soul's relationship to the body. How could you say the soul is more present in the brain than the toenail or than the foot if the soul can't be divided? The soul is shapeless, imageless, formless, just like God. It's a piece of God. Right, that's the light of the soul. In, in other words, let's put it this way. When we say the particular limbs of the soul are receiving a divine energy from the soul, the eyes when they tell you their experience, they're describing just that, their experience of the soul, not the soul itself. And the truth is your eyes who are receiving divine energy from the soul can't really tell you much about the soul, nor could any other limb. Maybe your brain a little bit because that's where it's most present. But again, that's in terms of the experience, the soul's most experienced in the brain. 
the brain is the is is the most powerful tool perhaps maybe the heart too right to experience the soul but the soul is everywhere the soul can't be confined to one particular place Nucleus, by the way, that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> it came back to me. The nucleus, the nucleus of the soul is in the brain. It expands to the rest of the body. But again, that, that's not the essence of the soul. That's not the soul itself. It's most experienced in the brain. Um, and, everywhere, and, and the rest of the body is going to receive the divine flow from the soul via the brain which is why the brain is in charge and brain health and mental health is a big deal for that reason. But the soul itself doesn't take the shape of the brain, isn't limited to our brains, which by the way, this is powerful. Think, think about this for a moment. The nucleus of where the soul's experienced is the brain, which means a healthy brain, healthy perspective is important because that's going to affect the rest of the body. But at the same time, the soul is not defined or limited or conformed to the limitations that our brain has. Which our brains do have limitations. And the reason is because the soul is a piece of God. God is not limited. Take a look on page 652, please. Um, the first bold paragraph, do you see it? 652. And the brain doesn't only receive power and energy from the soul itself. Rather, all of the powers and energies destined for the other limbs also to enter are initially contained within the brain and the head. So again, right. And there in the brain is the nucleus and the root of all soul flow. The disclosure of all soul's light and energy. And it's from there in the brain that the illumination from the soul spreads to all the rest of the limbs. Each limb receiving the power and energy appropriate for it befitting its temperament and, uh, and properties. So again, the soul's, uh, the way the soul energizes the body is going to be tailored to what each particular organ and limb needs, um, right? The soul's power of sight is disclosed in the eye, for example, the soul's power of hearing in the ear, etc. For as we know, all of these soul powers spread to the limbs from the brain. But take a look at this next paragraph. We're almost at the end. Hold on tight. For there in the brain is the energy, is the entire soul's primary location. And it's overtly expressed form from there, all the energy that is going to emerge from it to the body is already disclosed. And only specific powers drawing from all that energy will shine from there and spread to the body specific parts like the light spreads and shines from the sun into private rooms. Light comes from the sun into the various room 
And how much light is going to fill the room, right? Depends how big the window is and it depends how big the room is. There can only be as much light as, as the room itself. There's not going to be more light in a room than the room can handle. Similarly, the energy that it's going to get from the, the, each particular limb gets from the brain will only get what it can handle. And I guess in our case, what it needs. But again, the fact that that soul is conforming means the soul, the essence of the soul itself is way beyond that. We're gonna draw this parallel in, our, in the rest of the chapter later. Use this to, to parallel God. God gives specific vitality to everybody. And some, this is a spoiler alert, right? A human being has a lot more divine, uh, a lot more vitality than a stone. Right? They're both important. They're both created by God. But which one has more vitality? Which one moves? Which one breathes? Which one has life to it? Right? The stone has an existence, but humans are living. Even plant life, it grows. It has a little bit more vitality than a stone. Where is God more present? His essence is everywhere. But where is he more experienced? Will be more experienced by the human than by the stone. In other words, when we describe experiences, there's going to be varying amounts of vitality. When we describe the essence, who he truly is, who the soul truly is, it makes no difference how much energy you're getting. This is, God is everywhere. The soul is not defined by anything. You know, when we talk about the concept of excision, in Hebrew we say karet, right? the, the Torah talks about various punishments for various sins. And one of the punishments that's often talked talk about is karet, karis, which means being cut off. The soul gets cut off. Certain grave sins are uh, bad enough that God says your soul is being cut off. Oh, no, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> Had to do that. Um, the, soul, the soul, we have to, you have to laugh once, at least once per class. The, the soul gets cut off. But the soul is a piece of God. The soul is not defined by any limitation, by any brain limitation, by any emotional limitation, by any intellectual limitation. How could it possibly be cut off? And the answer is it can't. When we talk about a soul being cut off, we're talking about the experience of the soul. And that can always be regained. You lose experiences, you can regain experiences. Um, and that's the concept of teshuvah. I want that experience back. It's not that I want my soul back. <laughs> Your soul can't go anywhere not limited by by leap by anything it's i want the experience of the soul back um but in association with this i thought i've read that the soul can the, the worst punishment would be the soul goes out of existence is that that's not the case out of existence 
I don't remember how exactly how it was worded, but whatever I read at the time, I interpreted it to mean that the soul is basically becomes nothing. The, so one of the uh, because the soul, the peace of God, because the soul has no limitations, it's also eternal. Huh. It can't go anywhere. I'll have to. I guess that's its find, limitation. What? I'll have to find where I saw this. Okay, yeah, I, I would be interested in seeing it and seeing the wording and how that fits. I think it was actually, I might have to wait for a year. Of, you know, we have Simple Torah coming soon, but I think it was in one of the Humish, um commentaries, but it will take a while for me to come across it again. Okay, I'd be interested in seeing it, but maybe it's referring to, again, like what we're talking about, the experience of the soul rather than the soul itself. Maybe. I mean, that's possible. It's possible I just misinterpreted what was being said, or maybe the wording of what I read just put me on the wrong course of understanding. Right. Okay, well, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>